Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Abundantly Curious. I am your host, Jerry Page Butner. I am just getting back from a four-day weekend in Kripalu in the Berkshires, which is a yoga and wellness retreat, and I spent all of that time just doing Qigong, going on hikes, getting in the lake, doing yoga dance, yoga, eating delicious food, being in nature. It was really wonderful. And the one thing that I'll say before we dive into this episode is that if you haven't given your nervous system a delicious soothing bath <laughs> lately, just in terms of letting it be in nature and letting it relax and step outside of all of your responsibilities, then I invite you to create a space to do that now because not only is it so nourishing and so good for you, it also helps you do your work better whenever you return. So I returned Sunday and I've dove into this week. I feel so energized to create. It's been really great. With that said, I was extra energized to interview this week's guest, who I had never met before this conversation. So this is a really true exploration and getting to know each other here. And our guest is really cool. He does a lot of different things. He's a musician. He's invented something called the Traffic Cone Sax. He has created a board game. He's authored two books. He creates guided meditations. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And whenever I first read his profile, I was like, wow, this is a really cool person who I, I need to have on the show, primarily because the books that he has written are based on his research around consciousness and mystical experiences. Our guest had a, a mystical experience of his own a while back as an atheist and thought, uh, okay, how can I understand what has happened here in this mystical experience without any background in religion or spirituality? How can I approach this through the mind? How can I elucidate this through logic? And so he went on a tour. He was already touring musically for his band and interviewed some pretty popular scientists on topics including consciousness research, quantum physics, the impact of our mind on matter, out-of-body experiences, mystical experiences, reincarnation, the afterlife, and so much more. So today we dive into the research and the conversations that he had with these scientists and the way that he has put it all together in one of his books. We dive into so much juicy stuff here. So I highly recommend that you check out the show notes if you're not sure where to start or just dive straight in. Buckle up for a really cool ride. Before we dive in, I'd like to welcome you to the Abundantly Curious podcast, where we aim to spark curiosity, ignite inspiration, and open your mind to expand into possibility. Each week, we'll sit down with experts to dive headfirst into the magical, mysterious, and awe-inspiring elements of our world, with a focus on topics found at the intersection of science, spirituality, and self-help. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting subscribe now and joining our email list at the link in our show description and show notes. Our guest today is Wenzel McGowan, a member and co-founder of the internationally touring band Moon Hooch and inventor of the traffic cone saxophone. In 2013, Wenzel had a spiritual awakening during a meditation retreat and has since written two books about mystical experiences, meditation, and the science of personal growth. Both books draw from ancient teachings, direct experience, and modern science. Other avenues of his passion for personal growth are his meditation music and the board games he creates. Wenzel, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. To kick us off, I know this is a big question because there's so much you could bring in, but could you share a little bit about your background and the journey that led you to where you are today? For sure. Well, I started out pursuing just a very average goal of success, you know, wanting to be popular as a musician, wanting to have fans. And I mean, before that, I was very much just focused on studying jazz for 10 years and I didn't care at all about fame or anything like that. But then at some point I realized that I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. Mm. 
and to pay my bills, I'd have to play more popular music. And so I started familiarizing myself with more popular music, producing electronic music, even got a job on a cruise ship. And then that kind of started my career as a performer. And a couple of years later, I was playing international shows in front of big crowds, hanging out with celebrities and featured on TV shows and so on. I was one level happy that I reached that, but on another level was like, that's not gonna fulfill me. There was depression that came in and anxiety. And it's like, if like my goals now reached and I haven't reached happiness, how I'm gonna reach happiness. And there was no answer for that for a while until I started getting into spirituality and meditation and so on. And then I didn't really know how deep of a well meditation is going to be. Like, I thought it was more like, okay, maybe I'll be a little more happy. I didn't realize it could really open up a door to a mystical dimension that I knew nothing about, didn't believe in, and was frankly also scared of. So I found myself taking meditation very seriously just because that's the person I am. If I commit to something, I really commit. Um, I mean, maybe relationships is different, but you know, with personal <laughs> with, with personal growth things, if I want to play music, I really go all in. So I kind of did that to meditation. And before I knew it, I had a reality shattering experience that kind of flipped my identity upside down. I suddenly felt like I was a soul having a human experience. And my soul was the predominant seat of my identity suddenly where I could faintly remember who I was as a person. And that state lasted for a couple hours where I was just like completely merged with everything. And it was such a powerful experience, even though it was only just, it didn't last forever. It changed me forever because I wanted to understand how is it possible? What is reality? What is consciousness? What does meditation do to consciousness? What are the possibilities of, of consciousness growth? How, how deep does this go? And, and so it kind of opened my mystical exploration. And then I started exploring out-of-body experiences and writing about those experiences, also practicing them. It took me like a month and a half until I had my first experiences. But yeah, so that's how I went from a musician to a writer and someone who is focused on teaching meditation and personal growth. Mm. Something I noticed about you, and I got really excited whenever I was checking out your website and things online, is that there's not a box to put you in, right? And I'm curious yeah. to know if you've always been this way or if there was a moment when you shifted into just doing whatever you wanted and doing it passionately. You know, I think, honestly, I've always been like that. I remember just like my mom always gave me the idea that I can do whatever I want to do and express myself however I want to. And so I spent most of my childhood in the wilderness. I would just literally leave home and gather a group of kids and just build walls, build tree houses. And mm. so I feel like that's always been my personality. And it's, it's actually now a little challenging because I'm getting into marketing and like the marketing <laughs> people I work with, they're like, we don't know what to do with you. Like, you're not just that. You're not just a musician. You're not just a meditation teacher. You're not just an author. You're not just a board game developer. And also you're doing all those things in such a weird way. Um, but I feel like for me, it all is the same because I'm using all these avenues to bring consciousness expansion like my music the intention behind it is a space where you can feel your being where you can get closer to yourself my meditations it's the same the board game is just the same but for a group so that a group can together explore themselves and my books i'm trying to create intellectual frameworks for people who aren't willing to just jump into surrender mm. Because I myself had a very hard time with when I got to this point in meditation. I think there's a point where you start to touch something that's so much larger than yourself that it's almost like there's a point of surrender to something higher yeah. than yourself. And for me, that was extremely challenging because I didn't believe in anything. 
So I didn't believe that there was something like an intelligence out there that I could trust. And in my books, I'm really empathizing with people that are very logical and very doubtful and don't just accept, yeah, the Buddha is in everything or Jesus Christ and Christ consciousness is in everything and just expand into it. Like, I don't want to use these old frameworks because of the weight they carry, you know, the wars religions fought. So in my books, I'm kind of exploring, are there other avenues where we can take modern reason to bring us to a place to surrender? You bring up an interesting point, which is like, how can we explore this anew so that there's not all of these connotations and old stories attached to them and redactions even. There's so much Mm -hmm. redaction in this world with experience. Whenever you talk about Mm -hmm. surrender, what does that word and that concept specifically mean to you? To me, it means having trust that you're taken care of. And that you don't need to manipulate reality to be safe. Mm. Yeah. When you were preparing for your books, I watched your book trailer. And I saw that you did what seems like a lot of research. And you actually interviewed scientists around these out-of-body or mystical experiences. Mm -hmm. I was really interested in that. And I'm wondering if you can tell us more about what you found and uncovered. For sure. It took me six years of traveling the world and interviewing scientists. I had the luxury of having a traveling lifestyle because I was making money playing shows all over the world. So I would literally just look up, okay, I'm going to be in London. What kind of scientists can I find there? (laughs) And I'm going to be in LA. Who can I meet here? And even Tom Campbell in the middle of nowhere in Alabama, he lives in Huntington because NASA has a headquarters in Huntington. So... He lives close by because he worked for NASA. And I realized we had a day off on tour and it's only a two hour drive. So I just hit him up and was like, can I come visit you? And so I had an interview with him for like three hours and we ate some Indian food. I learned so much from interviewing scientists. It was amazing to me how many scientists are coming to very, very similar conclusions, yet the mainstream isn't adopting it readily because we're so fixated on the idea of matter. For a hundred years, we are unable to make sense of quantum mechanics. The double slit experiment is one of the most peer-reviewed scientific experiments of history, yet we can't make sense of it. And there's not one theory that 50% of scientists agree on. I think the reason it's so strange for us and so hard for us to make sense of, of the double slit experiment is because it's so counterintuitive that when we focus on particles or have ability to gain knowledge about the particle, that it changes the particle. Mm-hmm. And yet there's many scientists that now find different ways to making sense of it, how consciousness is so inter- t- intertwined with matter. And, and I think that's what I took away from all these interviews is that if we are willing to jump from matter as the fundamental reality to consciousness being the fundamental reality, we have a much better chance of making sense of quantum mechanics because consciousness is affecting quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. If we start with the assumption that consciousness is the consciousness is right, not matter is, and then we build everything on top of that, but consciousness is and matter is a product of consciousness. So I'm creating different frameworks and exploring how that could make sense. And one of the theories that I find very interesting is the simulation hypothesis, which assumes that all of this is simulation, basically. It's information. And that when you're walking out of your door, only then is that reality generated, in a sense, for you to experience and that things aren't real as we don't interact with them. And that is exactly how the quantum world works, because only once we interact with a particle does it really become a particle. Before that, there's a likelihood of it being a particle, and that likelihood is only manifested once it's observed or measured. I I find that an interesting idea, 
and an interesting way to approach science. And I think it also reflects very much what we experience when we have mystical experiences. Like often people that come back from mystical experiences say that this is just a dream. Like the Buddha said that. And I think a dream is, is basically an, a modern interpretation of what that means. It's, it's not real. It's an illusion, right? That's also a very common thing. And what is an illusion? It's information. It's an experiential reality. It isn't a solid physical reality. And, and so that's kind of explore that avenue on my book. You speak of mystical experiences. Are you open to sharing a little bit more about the experiences that you've had? Sure. So before I get into it, though, because I don't want to create beliefs or I don't want to create things that people assume are true, because I think it's extremely important that when you're having a mystical experience, that whatever truth comes to you is your way of interpreting it. Um, so I think that the way I interpret it, if I talk about my mystical experience, I'm already interpreting it mm -hmm. because I'm putting words to something that's so beyond words. And I think I can't overemphasize that yeah. enough because... Yeah, it's the mystical reality is beyond this. It's beyond what I think about it, what I say about it, and so on. But at the time, I had this encounter during deep meditation with some sort of intelligence that announced itself to be beings of the 10th dimension of love. That was a very new term for me. I didn't never heard that before. So I, I do find it weird that that came to me because I was a complete atheist. And, but I, I also doubt it. I'm like, okay, maybe I use that word because 10th dimension is, it, it represents something very far out. And love was just the eminence of these intelligences. It was like a very profound, loving, um, wise um, force that was very unquestionably beyond anything I had experienced. If I was Christian, I probably would say it was an angel or God. If I was more into alien conspiracy, I was like, yeah, it would have been aliens. Or Buddha, it would have been an encounter with Buddha. So I don't think the, the words matter. I think what matters to me is building a relationship with that force, with that higher power. And, and allowing it to be present in my life and help me shed more light on my unconsciousness and on all the different um, things in which I am working out of conditioning. So that's, I think, really is the main value of these experiences. I think it's easy to get lost in saying like, oh, I connected to the beings of love and light or blah, blah. But I, I think what really matters is building a relationship to something higher than you, something beyond you, and, and using that relationship to grow. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You bring up something that is really present for me right now because I'm taking a UFO religion and technology class right now with Dr. Diana mm -hmm. Pasulka. And she talks about what happens when we start to try to convey our stories, our mystical experiences. And, mm -hmm. and she actually has access to the Vatican archives of experiences. And as you said, they were interpreted through the lens of like, oh, these are angels. And nowadays there can be the experiences of, oh, it's UFOs, you know? But if you just rip all that away and stop trying to make it have a meaning that makes sense through the current cultural lens, you're left with a sensation uh, and experience a relationship that can often transform people. And what I'm hearing from you is that it did transform you. And what ways did your life shift from the before and after when you started experiencing these things? I had an anchor from that point on. And that anchor was anchored in something completely beyond myself, beyond my current level of functioning, beyond what other people embodied. But it felt like suddenly the potential of humanity was a visceral experience for me. It's just a place that reflects to me, that says, look, look at yourself. And I always have the choice to be, yeah, I don't want to look at that. Or be like, okay, fine, I'll drop it, you know? So it never violates my free will. But it reflects to me in honesty 
how I'm showing up. And yeah, I, I, <laughs> the words are hard to find. <laughs> yeah. What was the experience like? Because not only were you talking about it and conveying it, but you wrote a book, two books about these experiences. Yeah. What was it like trying to capture this in written form? Um, well, I'm intellectualizing it in the books, you know, I can do that, but I don't know how necessary useful it is, mm -hmm. but it was very necessary and useful for me at the time because I needed to have a connection to it that makes sense. And so on a very intellectual level, what is love? If there are beings that come from a more pure realm of love, what is love? And how could there be love in different dimensions? That's kind of like a question I asked myself. After interviewing all the scientists, I realized that some of them are also asking very similar questions. And I find very interesting what Tom Campbell says about that. To him, love is a coherent form of consciousness. Mm. And he says the only principles that we there are at play at the universe is entropy, which is chaos, right? Things to fall into chaos, that's entropy. And the syntropy or love. And as soon as you say that to a scientist, they say like, okay, you're anthropomorphizing because love is something we feel what you know to our partners and so on. But let's pause for a second. Let's define love very clearly. Love as I define it in my book, is the will to benefit others. Hmm. And, and so then now there is an emotion for that principle, which is our feeling of love. But the principle of love is just the will to benefit others. And that principle can be applied to anything that has free will. So you could have intergalactic beings flying around on spaceships, whatever. If they have free will and they relate to each other, the question arises, how do they relate to each other? Do they incorporate each other's will? Do they try to benefit each other and form a coherent system? Or do they manipulate each other, override each other's will? And that to me is then fear consciousness, which is high entropy consciousness. Because if you have a group of beings that try to override each other's will while working on something together, they will need laws, law enforcement, trials need to be scheduled. You need all these extra layers that create so much friction and, and so much energy. Like Just look at how much money are spent on lawsuits. Mm. That shows our level of consciousness. It shows that we're not at a stage where everyone walks out of the door and asks themselves, how can I serve every person I meet? But it's not at all like that. It's like, how can I get what I want from all these people? So everyone is trying to override each other's will. Um, so that's why there's so much chaos. But anyway, so then if that is the definition of love and that's the spectrum of evolution of consciousness, then it's extremely possible that there's intergalactic civilizations that evolved into extremely high for forms of love, where service is the fundamental emotional state. And in that point, those systems or civilizations would be very coherent, and their consciousness would be very close to one consciousness. Yeah, so uh, I'm kind of going on a tangent. What was the question? <laughs> I don't even remember, but I loved the tangent. <laughs> We're here for the tangents. Um, yeah, so, well, like, right, intellectualizing, right? So, yes. like, that's kind of how I intellectualize that form of love. Mm. Um, like, having the encounter to this other dimensional form of love. I find that things are often very interconnected, interwoven. But what you were just speaking of reminded me of a couple of books I recently read, The Law of One, The Raw Material. Have you read these? I heard about them, but I never, never read them. Okay. Well, there are some thoughts and views in that. And then also all over every other religion, spiritual consciousness exploration is the notion of whether or not we are 
elevating our consciousness collectively and individually. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that as it relates to like this planet and us as beings. That's a really good question. I was thinking about that yesterday because I'm kind of doing a deep dive into American history. And I was just familiarizing myself with the emotional climate of the Great Plains in the late 1800s. And it's mind-blowing what was the norm there. Like, killing and being killed was just, that's how life was, you know, like... In intense wars between the natives and the settlers and between the natives and the natives. Just like war was like what people wanted back then. Like there was some tribes out there that just loved war. For them was war was life. And the women wanted the strongest warrior and the men wanted to be the strongest warrior. And in order to prove themselves and gain tribal hierarchies, they had to ambush other tribes to prove their worth and prove their warriorhood. At the same time, Europeans were at the same level of consciousness. I mean, obviously there's varying levels of consciousness, but the majority was ready to fight and kill and not even feel empathy. So I do think that we've come really far. Also reading Malcolm X biography, and kind of familiarizing myself with the social climate he was born into. And, oh my God, like, it's unthinkable for us. The kind of violence that was done back then, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, we think, you know, now we're living in a racist society, but the history of racism, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people know this, but it's just reading about the, the direct stories is, is messing with my mind to think about how bad it was. So I'm feeling a lot of gratitude how far we've come. Yeah. And of course, we're far from perfect. You know, there's still racism around and there's still wars being fought. But I do think I can see like a critical mass rising that's saying no more. That's saying no more of racism, no more of wars no more of not seeing each other because racism and wars that's what that is it's it's literally just putting a label on the other person and saying you're not human anymore i'm not feeling what you're feeling i'm not relating i'm not empathizing and i'm just shunning you into darkness i think we're also outgrowing that so i do think there's a really rapid growth happening it's just when a hundred years is what you call rapid then we don't feel it as much because it's multiple, multi-generational. Yeah. But I do think we're on a very fast path to, to love consciousness. Like if you think about gal- galactically fast, mm-hmm. you know, like not for one lifetime, maybe fast, but I think in a thousand years, we're going to be at the level of unity we can't even imagine. I'm very curious to know what you think that would look like and feel like. Yeah, ask such good questions. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Like, you know, it's true. It's like, I love how you're steering the conversation. Um, you know, I think that consciousness is entangled with matter. We talked about that earlier, mm-hmm. right? And just to, to give some background f- for that idea, I interviewed Brenda Dunn from the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab. And they studied how intention affects probability. Like, if you really want something to happen, you changing the probability of it happening. And they did that through random number generators. Literally machines that were on the other side of the room generating zeros and ones at a random order. And then someone just wishing genuinely to have more ones or more zeros. And they would raise the probability of that to occur. Very interesting. When couples did it together that were in love, their ability to do that together multiplied exponentially. Mm. And when people did it together that didn't have an emotional bond, that didn't have the same effect. So I think that if we're having loving relationships with each other, um, I don't think it has to be romantic love, but genuine heart connections of really caring for each other, that humanity as a whole will just transform matter. Because we already see that the very essence of matter, which is probability, is being affected by our intention. 
and it's being more affected by our intention, the more loving relationships we're having. So this is all hypothesis, obviously. I believe this. I don't know if it's true or not. But I think that we'll actually start transcending the limits of this planet, the limits of space and time. I think that the rule set that we are incarnated into is actually just a structure in order to hold us safe at the level of consciousness that we are at. Because imagine now we all had the power to just shoot flames out of our <laughs> hands and lift cars and flip them around. One day in traffic, the whole city would be demolished. Mm. Because you cut me off, boom, flips their car around. You did this. And like we would not be able to maintain that much power because of our level of consciousness. So I think the fact that we're pretty powerless and matter is ruling our life and the laws of physics are ruling our lives is a blessing for us. But I also think it's a blessing that's intertwined with our growth journey. So that as we become more coherent, as the level of consciousness of the planet becomes more coherent, that rule set relaxes. I think we become more loose how much we can manipulate matter. I mean, we already see some people really honing in on those abilities and having more power to manipulate or change matter. For example, I interviewed the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California. And there they did experiments with the spectral distribution of the double slit experiment. So if you're shining light through the slits, you get a spectral interference pattern. And they just measure that and then had people just directing their attention towards the machine and measured how that would shift slightly their interference patterns. And there was a slight effect with everyone. However, people that really practice meditation for several decades would have a very powerful effect on it. Or people that didn't practice meditation but did another modality of personal growth. And I think the reason for that is because their consciousness is more coherent. Mm -hmm. If they practice, if they pluck out all these fears, fears create chaos in consciousness. So if you're pulling out fears and you're transmuting them into just awareness, then what the awareness you're holding is more coherent and it has a larger effect on matter. So I think that's an, one of the reasons why I have these beliefs. Mm. And also visions and dreams, just kind of like what's possible, you know, like kind of feeling out the possibilities in, in visionary states. Mm. This is so juicy. What keeps coming up here in this conversation and frankly in most of my conversations that I'm having here is meditation. And it's not something that just goes with one set of beliefs, right? It's something that's accessible to everyone that people do via, some people call it yeah. prayer, some people call it meditation, some people might call it manifestation, whatever it is, sitting in stillness presence. But, mm -hmm. you know, scientifically, the brain of people who meditate consistently looks totally different than the brain of people who do not and showing that it actually mm -hmm. has an impact on yeah. our physical structure to be able to be fully present and to access these different states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting what you were talking about before about coherence and how it can impact matter. It reminds me of the study, I'm forgetting the name of it, uh, but where uh, they had a group of 100 advanced meditators go to a small town accounted for what uh, the Marahishi Marishi effect. Yes, and it, and they meditated there, and they reduced crime in the population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine a world where people are so coherent and so connected mm -hmm. that we can come together in such a beautiful way? It's wonderful. I think it's happening. Mm. I think it's just slow. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, slow for our lives. Yeah. It's fast on a galactic scale. Like. Yeah. I love what you said earlier that how meditation isn't one faith and it kind of is applicable for all faiths. I think that is so true and that's why it's so valuable. And I think the reason for that is that meditation deals with the workings of focus, attention, and beliefs and thoughts. It doesn't deal so much with the content. Mm. 
Like, it doesn't matter what your thoughts are, what they believe, there's still a thought. So meditation brings all of us to that equal level where it's like, you know, maybe, yes, I'm having these judgmental thoughts about how my mother should be praying more. And maybe I'm having these judgmental thoughts about how my dad eats bad. But it's the same consciousness generating those thoughts. doesn't matter what our beliefs are. So I love this meditation technique that's really simple. It's like you sit down and you just focus on, on your breathing, how your stomach expands as you breathe in, and how your stomach just relaxes and falls down as you breathe out. And then when a thought comes in, you say in your mind, thinking. <laughs> and then you go back to just feeling your sensations. It's interesting because when we're having a thought, the thought, it doesn't want to be called thinking. It wants to be like, this is really important. You suck at this and you should be worried and you should not like yourself and you should punish yourself. I mean, that's kind of, kind of the underlying assumption of all our, our critical thoughts. They're like coming with such arrogance. They're coming with such arrogance in the sense that they want to be taken so seriously. While thoughts aren't that serious and they aren't that true. Because a lot of the time our thoughts, they don't see the whole picture. Like there's another cool technique called the work. When you're having a negative thought, you write it down. Then underneath you write, you ask yourself, how certain am I that this is true? Rarely will this number be 50% because most critical thoughts aren't even based on that real stuff to take a tiny fragment of reality, magnify it and try to induce anxiety. Then we write underneath, how would I feel without this thought? And then if it's a negative thought, great. And then you ask yourself, why do I hold on to a thought that I don't know if it's true that makes me feel bad? Mm. And that kind of makes me feel like, aha, uh -huh, yeah, why, why would I do that? And, and I, that's an interesting technique. It's a cool way to kind of bring you out of the reality of thought entanglement and more into presence. These practices that you just shared bring up an important distinction between the mind and consciousness, like your thoughts are not your consciousness. <laughs> How would right. you define, I know words don't really fully <laughs> summarize, but how would you define or describe what consciousness is? Well, maybe start by what it is not. Mm -hmm. I think that consciousness is not the content. It's not what we experience. Like our thoughts are not our consciousness because they are the content of the consciousness. If we're trying to define consciousness, then we're creating content, which is already not consciousness. So that is an interesting space to go to where you, you ask yourself, okay, I'm conscious, I'm aware, I hear cars in the street, I hear my computer humming, and then maybe a thought comes in, is that consciousness? Like just a plain experience without the labeling, that is consciousness. Mm -hmm. hmm. It's it's somewhat paradoxical to talk about. It really is. Yeah. It both is and is not at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, it reminds me of the like make your mind the sky and everything else is just the clouds floating through mm -hmm. it. And you use the word yeah. space, and that word's space has always given me a little bit of chills uh, whenever I hear it because in meditations whenever I can expand my awareness mm -hmm. like my consciousness out beyond into all that is that space mm -hmm. that connection that's when I can feel sometimes a little bit more tapped in and connected you create meditations and meditation music can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that and I'd also love to hear about your board game sure so the meditation music is something that I started doing very shortly after I had my spiritual awakening experiences. And it was kind of an avenue to put the emotions into sound without having to explain them. I actually write a lot to my own meditation music. Like I have a soundtrack called the End of Fear soundtrack. It's on Spotify and also on my website. I think it's two and a half hours long. So it's perfect if you're having a long work session or just kind of need to be in the zone. It always reminds me of, of my essence. 
like when I'm writing a book or working on something and I'm putting on this, it kind of gives me a, like a feeling of, aha, this is why I'm doing this. Mm. And this is where I'm coming from. It kind of is a reset. The guided meditations I started doing during COVID because we had a, a long tour through Europe that got canceled. And then I was just spending a lot of time in my meditation hut in the middle of nowhere and started releasing guided meditations. And if you go to my website and hit guided meditations and shoot me a text there, I send you a guided meditation every Monday. And so my board game kind of came out of my books because as I was interviewing Jim Tucker about past life regression therapy and children's past lives, I started kind of diving into this hypothesis of an incarnation system that souls incarnate in order to have experiences. And through these experiences, they start to remember who they really are. And when once they do that, they want to help others get out of their over-identified emotional spirals. So just do a quick side here. Jim Tucker is a very interesting scientist. He collected 2,500 case studies of children remembering past lives from all over the world. And these children have very detailed memories, like mm. to the point where they want to run away and get back to their old family and know all the names, what the family was doing, all of that. And so Jim Tucker took these cases and then tried to find the people that these kids remembered to have had as their family. And 51% of these cases are verified or, or confirmed where they could find the family. And usually the person that that kid thought they were in their past life had died six years before they were born. And so that is a very strange phenomenon. Sometimes it's less than three, two years, but, but always, you know, several years. So it's very strange. And Jim Tucker isn't so arrogant to say that this proves reincarnation, mm -hmm. but he definitely says this here is something like this is 2,500 case studies. This is not just, it is like, this is decades of scientific work. Yeah. Most religions start from the insights of reincarnation, tribal religions too, and shamanic traditions, and even was apparently in the Bible and was taken out by the Romans, reincarnation. So it's definitely an interesting hypothesis. Anyway, in the board game, I'm kind of looking at it from that perspective. And also from the perspective of Buddhism, that once you reach inner peace, you become a bodhisattva and you want to help others. And so in the board game, you're going from start to inner peace. And on the way, there's all these sidetracks into emotional spirals. And once you lose yourself in an arrogant spiral or self-doubt or anxiety or whatever, you keep rolling the die and you lead a breathing exercise. And then you share about that emotion. You either act out the emotion, or you tell a story, a fictional character or a philosophical idea. And there's exit signs in each spiral, and the other players try to help each other get on these exit signs by becoming non-physical players, either by reaching inner peace, they have no longer board game peace, but they become kind of like helping spirits where they can help others get out of their emotional spirals. But before they touch anyone, they need to ask for consent, and if they don't ask for consent, they have to rejoin the game into the arrogant spiral. And so it's also a consent practice. Oh, I, I love that. And the study, the research that you mentioned brings up mm -hmm. that concept of, okay, are we reincarnating or is there an afterlife? Is the afterlife a continuation of what is? I'm curious, in your opinion, where are the possibilities of the afterlife? To me, all the research I've done points towards reincarnation. Mm -hmm. Because I've just encountered that same idea from so many angles, like through the research of out-of-body experiences, even like people that study out-of-body experiences on their own for a long time. For example, um, Robert Monroe, he would meet belief system rings, as he would call them. And for him, a belief system ring was basically a group of souls that had a similar belief. Mm. And for example, a religion. And they would all hang out in the same belief system ring waiting for the savior. And then there would be other beings there that slowly um, helped them outgrow their belief so that they could incarnate again. They wouldn't do it abruptly, but 
you slowly help them coming to new understandings, playing them out in the afterlife and processing their souls so that they can accept reincarnation basically and either choose another life in this planet or in another planet. And that was like a direct experience that Robert Monroe has. And he writes about this in Journey of Souls and Journeys Out of the Body. Tom Campbell had the same experience where he would study out-of-body experiences, leave his body. And after doing that for decades, he would even got a job as a non-physical worker helping souls um, process their fear of hell. Hmm. He says that a lot of um, heavy religious people die with that trauma of hell and then spiral into the fear of hell and generate that reality for themselves in the afterlife. And so he would kind of try to meet them and help them realize it's just a fear and it's not a reality. He always said, I have a day job and I have a night job. During the day, he works for NASA. <laughs> At night, he processes souls in the afterlife. <laughs> just <So>. very casual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very funny. Um, I haven't had any direct experiences with reincarnation that I had a few flashbacks during meditations where I was a really arrogant sailor that just decided to go sail across the ocean, although everyone was like, you're going to die. So I don't know if that was a vision, past life, who knows. I feel like I've just encountered that belief in many different forms. Also in hypnosis, mm. um, for example, past life regression therapy. It didn't start out as past life regression therapy. It started out as actually Brian Weiss was... Dr. Brian Weiss was the founder of it. And he was just using hypnosis to help clients get over anxiety. Mm. And one of his patients, whenever she would go into hypnosis, would remember a past life in which she got really traumatized. And then most of the time had a very violent, uncomfortable death. And then floated out of her body into a white light where she meets guiding spirits that kind of help her understand her life. And then she comes back and doesn't remember anything she talked about it after hypnosis. But Brian Weiss, for years, just keeps track of it. Dozens of lives, all ending in a similar way. And the way she describes her deaths in during the hypnosis is coherent with what we find in near-death experiences. Mm. When people die and then get resuscitated, is that the right word? Yes. When they get resuscitated, they come back and they see, yeah, I traveled through this tunnel into this white light. It was amazing, full of love and wisdom and it all made sense. In the hypnosis, people that go in, that experience their past lives have near-death experiences that are coherent with what we actually find in near-death experiences. So that's also bizarre. Why would that be happening if it wasn't a reality? So we find that belief anywhere we go deep in mysticism. Hmm. I just, I geek out on this. It's so fun to think yeah. of and to know that you'll never, I won't say never, but to know that we won't know the truth during this lifetime necessarily with 100% certainty, mm -hmm. but that we can explore all of these things and we can feel yeah. what feels like truth. Yeah. Yeah, for it's sure. It's really beautiful. I also find very interesting Dr. Newton's hypnosis case studies, which he writes about He's a very nosy psychologist. <laughs> I mean, to the point where it's like, sometimes it's almost like a reporter, where it's a little questionable the way he questions his case studies, because it's, it sometimes feels like he does it to gain more understanding about the reincarnation system mm. and less to help them get over trauma. Uh. But the book is nonetheless fascinating because of that. So he writes about how souls choose lives. And, and there he writes about these case studies where these souls have simulated, for example, this guy that died in New York. And then towards the end of his life, he picked up the accordion and he loved how music felt. But then he died and couldn't pursue it. So he decides as a soul that next life he wants to try to be a pianist and, and really explore music full time. So then his guides offer him a few options in different countries of potential bodies. 
and he goes into these simulated experiences where he feels what it would be like to that to be that person and then he needs to pick a, a family structure that would force him to practice because he knows he w is not going to have that discipline himself so he picks a family that wants to have a prodigy pianist like that's their dream so he writes about this process of how he selects to be, become this pianist. This made me think a lot. I'm loving this. So we haven't even gotten to your music, and your music seems to be like such a big part of you. I wanted to ask mm -hmm. how that all ties up into this and how it relates to your music and how they're cohesive. Well, when I started music, this wasn't part of my music. Mm -hmm. But after my awakening experiences, they became more a part of my music. It changed the, the way I performed because I started to go on stage into altered states of consciousness and just tr really try to embody this like light warrior that would just be there to serve the ascension of mankind with no other focus. And I, I felt that, you know, whether you believe in that or not, doesn't matter. My performance gets a lot better through it, you know, because I would just be raging in, in this like totally high performance mode. Um, and people would be like, okay, let's go, you know, and my partner, Mike, he's also on that same trip. You know, he's very much a warrior spirit that just wants to bring people to love. And so we have these crazy spiritual experiences on stage sometimes, mm. you know, and I feel like it's just, a reflection of what we're talking about just through an avenue that's more accessible to more people. Mm. And just so people can visualize it and then they can go follow you. You're playing saxophone and different musical instruments, but some of them are altered, right? With a traffic cone, I think I saw. Yeah. yeah. The traffic cone saxophone, yeah. I started doing that a decade ago and now it's like a international viral sensations. I, I was on America's Got Talent <laughs> with that instrument. And then someone wrote as a comment, oh, this is nothing new. People are now doing this all over the world. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, people don't realize I've been doing this. I was the first one doing it. It's funny that such a weird, it's probably the most popular thing I've done on this planet, but it's so random and has no apparent purpose. But it does make people feel like, okay, I guess you can think outside the box because it's definitely an outside of the box kind of thing to do because it makes the saxophone lower and now you can suddenly play bass by putting a traffic cone onto your saxophone. I, know, I was like rocking out to one of your Instagram videos earlier. It sounded like dubstep or something. I was like, yes, oh, yeah. I love this. <laughs> I light up at that. You know, we complicate things sometimes and we get really complex about like, what will bring me success in life? And what is my purpose? Yeah. And all these things. And you stuck a traffic cone in a saxophone. And of course, it's more complex than that. But you just did this thing that your heart or mind told you to, to be playful and fun. And then it's the most popular thing that you've done. <laughs> yeah. So... What is something that everyone at home could start doing today if they wanted to start tapping into more coherence? I think making that decision is huge. Mm -hmm. Just that decision on its own. I remember I found a book called E-Therapy. It was a tiny book. It was yellow. It was handwritten from the 50s. And I didn't realize that this book is available nowhere else. And I probably have the last copy of it in my hand. And I gave it to a homeless person after I finished reading it. So e-therapy is about just making that decision. It's like you ask E to come into your life and show you the aspects of yourself that are holding you back to fulfill your potential and help you fulfill your potential. Mm -hmm. And then in e-therapy, that E could stand for if you don't like the word E for whatever reason, you can use Jesus Christ, Buddha, Allah, um, Muhammad, whatever. Like it doesn't matter what symbol. It's just as long as it symbolizes a loving, transcendent element that is infinitely wise and has intimate access to you or that you can have an intimate relationship with. So I kind of like that, you know, because it's like there's no dogma there mm -hmm. other than making the decision to ask this higher element to come into your life and i think just 
doing that is really powerful and and everything else will kind of unfold on its own like you sit down and just close your eyes and say e may you come into my life and may you show me the aspects that are holding me back and may you help me fulfill my potential mm. and then for me it took a couple months until like crazy things started happening um but I did this as a complete atheist. Just I found this book and I was like, well, if this is true, let's see if this is true, you know? And so I lie down on my couch and I did that. And then one thing led to another. I started meditating and went to a meditation retreat and then had these really profound experiences that taught me so much. Obviously, meditation is always helpful. It just makes your life easier to just sit down and focus on your breath and let all that stress go. I like what you said. It's like sometimes the invitation and the awareness is enough to initiate. You don't have to like control and manage something all the way yeah. down the road. I want to give you a chance to share more about your work. You do so many things, but is there anything that you want to share with people and invite them to with your work? Oh, I also make base massage tables, <laughs> but I don't sell them. But I do offer base massage experiences. So I developed these tables that vibrate and you lie on them and they vibrate your body with sound and they can bring you into very interesting experiences. Like I usually interview people after they have these experiences and some people have full out, full blown out of body experiences. And some of it gets really intense. Like it, it goes into like really lighthearted, beautiful butterfly music, more into like really dark, intense space. Mm. So it's more like a psychedelic journey where it brings you into many levels of yourself. And so this one woman that I gave the bass massage to, she said she had this experience where suddenly her whole body melted. And what remained was a skeleton made out of a robot. And she was frightened by that. And then suddenly she felt like, oh my God, I've been living my life like a robot. And then at that moment, this carriage shows up with two men in charge of the carriage and they had flaming hair. And the carriage was strapped to a meteoroid. And so she jumps in and they shoot off with her into the galaxy. And there she has all these far out experiences. And so she came back and was really grateful for having had this experience, although it was at points really intense and uncomfortable, but then also insightful. Wow. And this was without psychedelics. This was just like through the table and the work. Yeah, it? no drugs. Wow. Yeah. You're taking people on journeys. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Wow. For everyone, it's different, though. Like some people yeah. don't see anything at all. Mm hmm. And some people do. So I like how also that this one is so non-conceptual. It's like, it's not going to give everyone the same journey at all. Mm -hmm. Some people just experiences feelings, others visions, and so on. And are these yeah. tables in New York? In New Bedford, Massachusetts. New Bedford. That's close to me. I'm in Boston, so huh? I might be there. <laughs> Wait, you're in Boston? Yeah. Oh, we're like an hour away from each other. I did not know that. For some reason, I thought you were in New York. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, I'm coming yeah. for the base tables. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> awesome. Amazing. Okay, and could you tell us how the audience can connect with you afterwards? And then repeat maybe yeah, the names you... of your books so they can find them. Okay. So you can find me on Instagram at Wenzel Sachs, W-E-N-Z-L-S-A-X. Or my website is Wenzel McGowan at at wenzelmcgowan.org, W-E-N-Z-L-M-C-G-O-W-E-N.org. You can also write me on Instagram or, or on the website. And my books are The End of Fear and The Sequence of Latent Truth. The End of Fear is a novel where the character lives through multiple lifetimes. It's kind of all the ideas we discussed about compacted into a story. Um, that, I think, is my more popular book. And the other book is just deep research and really the foundation of everything I do. Thank you. So everyone go out and follow and find these books. And one last question that I ask everyone, if you could leave our listeners with one message, what would it be? I think accept yourself mm. fully 
every aspect, even the ones that you feel like are not good or not perfect. Like, I think if we can be more kind to ourselves, it goes a long way. <sighs> thank you for that. <laughs> and thank you for all of this. I loved this conversation. <laughs> I want to keep having it, but thank you so much, Wenzel, for this. And thank you for yeah, your time. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to be kept in the loop on new episodes like it, follow us on Instagram at Abundantly Curious or join the email list at the link in our show description and show notes. And if you've got extra love to give, which we always welcome, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, when we open our minds, we open to new possibilities.